This is Dr. Shannon M. Clark with A Doctor Delivers Podcast, and today I am discussing the what, when, and why with Dr. Kenan Almertog. Have a listen. Just so I'm going to start from the top. Yeah, okay. This is Dr. Kenan Omertog. He is a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist. How I first noticed your account were those really cool, do you call them whiteboard or blackboard videos? I call them light videos. Lightboard, lightboard videos. Yeah. So if you, yeah. if you don't follow his account, what is the name of your account on Instagram? Um, it's at Dr. Kenan Omertog MD. So at Dr. Kenan Omertog MD with the DR. Right, and I will put it also in the caption of this video so you can look at all those cool lightboard videos that he has, and they're under the Instagram TV on your account, right? Correct. Right, right. So that's how I first noticed you, because I think you have a really good way of explaining things, and especially, especially your IUI video series, which I thought was excellent. So that's why you're here discussing IUI today. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's just start from the top. We're going to talk about, let's talk about the basics of IUI. Explain the process. Um, IUI, or intrauterine insemination, also known as artificial insemination, has a multitude of indications. A lot of times it's coupled with simple uh, oral medications. Sometimes it's coupled with injectable medications. Um, sometimes it's, uh, you know, coupled with just natural cycle and timing. So there Let's are a just lot talk, of about the, talk about the specifics first, and we're going to go into the medications, but talk the specifics first about just the natural without any other medications, what the process would so, look like. So, you know, you have artificial insemination, you're doing it for whatever reason, um, for, you know, wh whether it's unexplained empiric use and you're trying to get the sperm closer, or you're using donor sperm, or the semen parameters uh, from the partner are not adequate. So you want to get a more concentrated bolus of sperm into the genital tract. So IUI, artificial insemination, is just getting sperm exposure at the right time. And the timing in a natural cycle, for example, is around the time of ovulation. So how do you know when to time sperm exposure? It's very simple. You use an ovulation prediction kit. And when the kit turns positive, the day after the kit turns positive is when you want to do um, an insemination. There can be some variation from clinic to clinic, but the standard is if a if you have if you're use if you're if you have 28 day cycles, you're predictable. You use an ovulation prediction kit on cycle starting cycle day 10. The kit turns positive, let's say on cycle day 12. Um, you do the artificial insemination the next day. Okay, in a clinic. Now, if you're doing home inseminations stuff like that, maybe you do you know, you definitely want to get the exposure the day after the test is positive. Some people will do it the day the test is positive and the day after. Again, there's some variation in this. If you're seeing a uh, fertility specialist, talk to them about what the protocol is. Yeah, I think I found that every fertility specialist has their certain nuances and things that they prefer uh, and for whatever reason. And so when you, you know, rather than doing it at home, when you are with a fertility specialist, they're going to tell you what protocol they prefer. It's not going to be a whole lot different from fertility specialist to, to fertility specialist, but you know, they, one might want you to do it on one day versus the other. Um, so that's why if you're doing it with fertility specialists, it's very important to uh, talk to them about their preferred process. Now, when you spoke about ovulation predictor kits, I get this question a lot. Which one's the best? Which one should I use? Do you guys as fertility specialists have a preference or does it really anything over the counter will do? Um, let me first say I have no financial conflict of interest with right. any of these companies. Let me say that. But there really right. is, I don't really have a preference. So, but of a brand or anything like that. But let me say this. There are kits where you compare two lines. There are kits where you get a binary result. Yes, no, that's digital. There are kits where you get three results. Um, I do like the binary kits where you get a smiley face or no smiley face, um, just because those are probably the most user friendly. Um, they can be more difficult to find. Uh, usually have to go online to find them. They're not on the shelves at your brick and mortar retailers, mm -hmm. but um, they can be like more expensive, right? They're $35 mm -hmm. for 10 test kits, which is basically one cycle. Mm -hmm. um, I want to take this opportunity to point out those kits where you get a nothing like no smiley face you get high and then you get peak um which is usually nothing is the empty circle the flashing smiley face is the high and the solid smiley face is the peak um you want to time sperm exposure when you get a peak on those mm -hmm. kind of kits 
Okay, mm -hmm. so that's very important. Because um, what the flashy smiley face is, before you ovulate, not to get too in the weeds here, but before you ovulate, um, you have a surge in LH. And that LH surge precedes ovulation by about 48 hours, roughly. Mm -hmm. So that's why you time the IUI the day after the kit is positive. So an ovulation prediction kit turns positive because you have an LH surge. Your brain is mm -hmm. sending a signal, time to ovulate. Mm -hmm. And you will ovulate 48 hours after the kit is positive. Let me say mm -hmm. that again. When you have a positive ovulation prediction kit, that does not mean you are ovulating. It means you are about to ovulate. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you want to bathe the genital tract with sperm probably a day later so that when ovulation occurs, the sperm is in the genital tract ready for to, uh, you know, inseminate the egg. Um, those kits that give you that high result, that high result is the estrogen peak that precedes the LH surge. Okay, mm -hmm. so you have an estrogen peak, you have an LH surge and then 48 hours you ovulate. So the manufacturers just said, hey, let's add this. We can measure the estrogen peak. Let's just add this intermediate measurement and then we can sell a new product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so do you recommend the ones with estrogen? It sounds like you really don't need the ones that are showing the estrogen. It's really. not, no, yeah. it's not clinically, like it's not clinically important information, quite honestly. Yeah, um, so it's that's just another why, way to charge a little bit more, <laughs> probably. Maybe, yeah, like maybe. And, and quite frankly, the binary kits and the, the triple result kits, um, which I'll refer to as the triple result kit versus the binary kit, I think the costs are actually not that different. And the, the triple kits, I think, are more, at least in our market here in the Midwest, are more available at the brick and mortar retailer. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why a lot of people end up getting that. Or some people just think, well, it's got three results. Maybe it's better. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, gotcha. so, so I don't think any one kit is better than the other. Mm -hmm. um, but I think... Um, you know, I, I always tell patients, use what works for you. So if a patient's frustrated because they're comparing two lines yeah. and don't like it, you know, then I'll yeah, say, yeah. try this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so speaking still on just a run-of-the-mill IUI cycle without any additional medications, we will get into that. Um, how many of those cycles would you recommend before suggesting adding medications? So it depends. So if someone has unexplained infertility, um, the standard first line treatment for someone with unexplained infertility, one year of unprotected intercourse is, you know, with completely normal workup would be Clomid 100 milligrams with artificial insemination for three cycles. Mm -hmm. And then you move on to IVF. That's the mm -hmm. standard pace of someone with unexplained infertility. So it depends on why you're doing IUI. Exactly. Really. So the, you know, the um, lesbian couple who's do doing donor sperm, the single woman who's doing donor sperm, the couple in which the male partner has azospermia and is using donor sperm. Those folks, if the um, patient has normal menstrual cycles, you can do three to six cycles of insemination. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the pacing has to do with the age of the um, egg source, mm -hmm. the um, AMH, other risk factors, their, their desired pace on their mm -hmm. fertility yeah. journey. But usually, no. Usually, three to six is kind of where I fall, where it falls. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so you and you already touched on this a little bit. The best candidates or the most uh, the the common indications for using IUI would be what? The common indications for IUI. Yeah. Usually, it's a complementary treatment to a lot of folks who are wanting to be aggressive with. PCOS, if they've done letrozole with timed intercourse, now they're ready to do letrozole, add in IUI for three cycles, not yet ready for IUI or IVF, mm -hmm. um, unexplained infertility, standard first line, Clomid 100 plus IUI, um, patients with endometriosis who are not, you know, otherwise tubes are open, sperm is normal, they have mm -hmm. a diagnosis, Clomid, you treat them kind of like unexplained with Clomid mm -hmm. IUI. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, you do that for three cycles. Injectable cycles, maybe you have a patient who's not ready for I IVF. Maybe you have someone with diminished ovarian mm -hmm. reserve whose mm -hmm. response to IVF may not be that different to mm -hmm. um, you know, oral medication, mm -hmm. oral medication plus injections. Mm -hmm. Patients where this, where, you know, we have patients where the uh, male partner has difficulty providing a semen sample. Mm -hmm. um, so what we recommend there, you know, th they maybe have some ejaculatory, you know, dysfunction, dysfunction yeah. erectile mm -hmm. dysfunction. Um, 
We have patients who have vaginismus. Um, mm -hmm. So there might, those would be indications for IUI, some mm -hmm. of the kind of sexual dysfunction um, indications. Mm -hmm. um, those would be reasons. Obviously, people using donor uh, sperm. Also, those folks in which the semen parameters may be low, but not mm -hmm. that low. Mm -hmm. Maybe the concentration is low normal. The motility is low normal or low. Um, those would be patients where IUI makes sense. So they might have a mild male factor. Those would also be indications for IUI. IUI is usually a first-line treatment for a fertility clinic. Um, mm -hmm. Most OBGYN clinics, a lot of OBGYN clinics will do IUI, but the fertility clinics have a really streamlined system of providing IUI and logistics to support it. Yeah, and I, and I will take the opportunity. I always say this whenever I talk to about a fertility-related topic. Uh, yes, general OBGYNs or obstetricians, gynecologists can do, some of them do do IUI, but make sure that physician explains exactly what Omar Tog just went through, your indication, what they think, why they think it might work for you. If they're just throwing medications at you or Cloma, let's do a Cloma at IUI. That's not enough because you don't want to either waste your time doing something that may not be beneficial for you. You may not want to waste your money because you have a certain amount of money that you're, you have allotted to try to get pregnant. So make sure you have all these questions answered and make sure that IUI is the right choice for you. You can always get a second opinion with a fertility specialist just to make sure they're in agreement before you start this process with your general OBGYN. But make sure they have this conversation and discuss all these things we're discussing today in the general OBGYN's office. And I say that because you know they're not doing IUIs all day, every day. They're general OBGYNs. They have a lot of other things they do. These guys here, that's what they do all day, every day. That's what their, their training is. So if you want to get down to the nitty gritty about what, whether or not you're a good candidate, which is the best IUI protocol, the fertility specialists are the ones that are gonna know that the best. I'm not discounting general OBGYNs at all, but you, it's at least worth it to get a second opinion from a fertility specialist before you start that process, just to make sure all the bases are covered. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's about logistics and support. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's really not about, I mean, it's not really a competency issue. It's right. more just, it's more right. experience. Like, for example, yeah. there are some OBGYN clinics that do, they're pretty facile with providing IUI mm -hmm. during the week. But if it mm -hmm. falls on a Saturday, yep. it's a little more, it might not be, it might, it might be a little more challenging. Yep. There might be some yeah. more uncertainty, et cetera. Um, yes. And there are some clinics that do it really well and they, they, that's great. And then mm -hmm. when they're done, they come, patients come to us and do IVF. Mm -hmm. There are some patients who are like, yeah, I just need to, I just need, a, we do 10 a day on some days. So mm -hmm. we kind of have a system in place. Right. right. Um, let me call out just what's the best time for ovulation in the day. If you don't mind, I'll just go to these quick questions. Yeah. Um, the, you, I tell people to just test in the morning. Um, some, the first morning urine, you know, the kids will say, maybe not do that, do it at 10 a.m. I mean, are you going to take the kid to work and test at work? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people don't want to do that. I tell patients you can test before 2 p.m. and then let the clinic know by 2 p.m. I don't think you need mm -hmm. to test three times a day and do right. all this stuff. This is not designed to be, this should not um, be too arduous. Um, right. it's, it's, the journey is as arduous as it is already. Uh, just test once. If yeah, IVF right. isn't a good solution because of DOR, why would Clomid IUI be recommended? Well, because in some patients with DOR, if you have diminished ovarian reserve, specifically if your AMH is really low, mm -hmm. I could do IVF and I might only get two or three follicles. Right. I could do Clomid and still get two or three follicles. Right. And if your tubes, your ovary, if your tubes, the sperm, everything is okay, um, there's a good chance you could, I mean, your chances of success with IUI may not be that different. Again, right. highly individualized yes. uh, conversation on that okay. point. Um, but I just want to call out that it would not be unreasonable. Also, I practice in a market where 50% of patients are paying out of pocket, yes. as opposed to some markets where 95% of patients yes. have insurance coverage. Yes. So there's a lot of variation in practice just based on region. So we have more conversations about cost and the calculus that patients have to navigate in that regard. Well, that's a very good explanation. You know, cost is always a factor, especially if it's out of pocket. So if your REI is considering cost, which it sounds like in that situation they are, why, you know, that patient that has de decreased ovarian reserve, put them through a more expensive process with IVF when the results with IUI and meds might be just be equivalent. Is that what it's about? Yeah, and some of the protocol, yeah. yeah, and some of the, again, remember, we, I use IUI, the whole point, well, let me say this. The 
part of the point of IUI for a lot of indications, specifically unexplained infertility, is to increase the bolus of modal sperm in the tube. So when you have in a normal situation where you're ejaculating sperm in the vagina, a you know, you're depositing millions of sperm in the vagina, thousands make it through the cervix, and only hundreds of sperm will make it up into the tube. The whole point of IUI is to bathe the uterus and the fallopian tubes with millions of modal sperm to increase the odds that sperm and egg will meet. So if there is a problem with motility, if there is a problem with concentration, IUI makes sense. Someone asked a question about morphology. Is isolated teratospermia, which is basically all your semen parameters are normal except for morphology, isolated teratospermia. Is isolated teratospermia an indication for IUI? Sure. Do you need to move straight to IVF for that? Highly individualized. If you have insurance coverage, insurance may say yes, may say no. Your physician may say yes. Physician may say you don't need to do that. You might not, you could try IUI. Again, highly individualized yes. conversations on that point. Um, so I'll stop there. But yeah, yeah. So great yeah. question. Yeah, and we, if we have time, we'll go down and get some more questions. But I wanted okay. to move on to the, you have a great series under your, um, in your Instagram account about do, using the different meds. So one thing you keep saying over and over again that I noticed in all your videos, I watched them all yesterday. There are two reasons to use the yeah. drugs accompanied with IUI. To help people who don't ovulate, ovulate. And to help people who do ovulate, super ovulate. Yeah. Right? Which is excellent. Yeah. And, that, and that makes sense. Two reasons. So let's talk about IUI with Clomid. Explain that, that process and who might be a, a good ex, uh, candidate for IUI plus Clomid. So anyone who has like an ovulation dysfunction that maybe doesn't have PCOS, I'll use it with, pay, obviously, uh, you know, unexplained infertility is a good indication. Maybe you're 37, you have two years of unprotected intercourse, the semen parameters are not optimal, um, not that you need IVF, but you need IUI. So those would be the kind of patients where I would be a little more aggressive in adding in Clomid. Some of those patients, the unexplained, the patients who already have regular cycles, you're using the clomiphene to super ovulate them. They already release an egg every month. You want to increase the odds that sperm and egg will meet. So you're going to give them uh, clomid to get them to release more than one egg. And if they're 38, you would not be that, uh, it's not, it's not a, their risk of twins is lower if they release two or three follicles with, you know, if they release two or three eggs than if they were 28. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the reasons why I use Clomid. Clomid works by tricking the brain into thinking there's no um, estrogen around. So the brain spills out a little more FSH and as a result recruits an extra follicle mm -hmm. or two in the patient with unexplained infertility, in the patient who already ovulates. In the patient who doesn't ovulate, let's say the patient with PCOS, maybe they didn't like letrozole, they wanna, they've already tried it, they wanna try something different. Letrozole tends to be, is now kind of first line in a lot of folks with PCOS. Mm -hmm. um, so in those patients who maybe don't have responded to letrozole, want to try something different, the Clomid works the same way. Mm -hmm. And it helps those folks who don't ovulate with PCOS, helps them get a little more of their own FSH to pour out, to get that follicle, to get over the hump that is preventing it from growing and ultimately ovulating. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, you might release more than one egg um, so the Clomid helps boost the natural, uh, the likelihood of success. And in a lot of these folks who have been trying, I mean, just take the patient with unexplained infertility. They have a 5% chance of getting pregnant with Clomid alone after they've been uh, diagnosed with unexplained infertility, assuming they've had one year of unprotected intercourse, the workup is normal. They are, if they keep just having unprotected intercourse, they have a less than 5% chance of conceiving per month. If they add Clomid alone, it's about 5%. If you add in the IUI, it can get up to 10%. So Clomid plus IUI just boosts one's um, natural ability to get pregnant in a given month. Gotcha. And two of the other things along with, uh, that you talked about when you were talking about Clomid on your video, the side effects of Clomid are typically some hot flashes and mood swings. Anything else with side effects to expect with Clomid? No, I mean, those are the big ones. Um, it's just mood lability, some hot flashes. Um, people get caught. The, the other thing that people always read about or hear about um, is, does the Clomid cause my lining to thin? Mm -hmm. um, so what ends up happening is a lot of clinics, a lot of folks marry 
um, Clomid IUI treatment with a mid-cycle ultrasound. So they'll look, how many follicles did you make? Mm -hmm. How's the lining look? And invariably, some patients will have a thinner lining and we'll give them estrogen. Some folks will give them estrogen. Some folks will say it's not a big deal. Um, and ultimately, it's just something to know about. But again, highly individualized. Talk to your mm -hmm. physician about, um, about it. Most of the time, the, it's not an issue with Clomid causing a thin lining. But if you do have it, talk to your physician, you know, mm -hmm. maybe the other drugs like letrozole, which may not have an impact on the endometrium and its receptivity to estrogen. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, those are good points to bring up, but you'll, some people will always hear about Clomid <laughs> specifically and thin endometrium. Okay. And then also you, you mentioned that there's no restrictions after the insemination occurs um, as far as bed rest or anything like that. You no. Continue as typical. No, we tell people, hey, you yeah. know, we do the, ins we, the, the in IUI is a pelvic exam. It takes five minutes. In a lot mm -hmm. of practices, sometimes the nurses do them. Yeah. Um, and it, you just, it's a concentrated sample. It's a thin catheter that goes through the cervix. The sperm is deposited in the uterus and that's it. It's like okay. a pap smear for most people. They can get up, go to work. They can have intercourse. They can exercise. Yeah. There's no real restriction. Good. And you've already mentioned, I want to go next to letrozole. Um, there is uh, IUI with Clomid. Now you have IUI with letrozole. What is the difference between letrozole and Clomid? So they work, their end result is the same, but how they do it is a little bit different. So Clomid works at the level of the brain. Mm -hmm. It blocks estrogen receptors at the level of the brain. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the brain is like, hey, where did all the estrogen go? I guess there's none anymore. So let me make, let me send out another hormone called FSH to get the mm -hmm. ovary to make more follicles, more. and as in doing so, make more estrogen. Mm -hmm. Letrozole prevents your entire body and all the enzymes in your body called aromatase that make that convert male hormones to estrogen. So mm -hmm. a lot of basically what ends up happening is the whole body shuts down production of estrogen. And then as a result, the brain detects a systemic drop in estrogen. And then the brain's like, I guess there's no estrogen in the entire body. So let mm -hmm. me now pour out some more FSH. So they, the end result is the same in that the brain detects a drop in estrogen and pours out at more FSH. How, where the drop, what the mechanism for tricking the brain is different. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. And then you said, Ursula, earlier that the indication primarily for letrozole with IUI is PCOS. So that's first line. Yeah. Now, yeah. let me say this. Someone with PCOS who's 28, uh, showing up at their OBGYN for the first time with, you know, three to six months of unprotected, inter or, you know, three to six months of unprotected intercourse, 40 to 60 days of, um, you know, intervals of their cycle. They don't necessarily, they don't necessarily need to add the IUI. They might try letrozole alone for mm -hmm. three to four cycles. And then if they're not pregnant, then maybe you look at the sperm, look at the tubes. And then if the sperm's abnormal, uh, then maybe you might add in IUI. Or if they're like, you know what, this letrozole alone, not cutting it for me. I need to be a little more aggressive. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this now for two years, mm -hmm. you know, or 15 months. I'm a little more antsy. Um, I'm 33 now, still haven't had a child. Let's just go to IUI. I'm not ready mm -hmm. for IVF. I don't have coverage, okay. blah, blah, blah. Okay. Okay. All right. Injectables. That would be the IUI plus injectables. Explain that and just same thing, common, common indications for using injectables and who the ideal candidate might be. So think about it this way. So fertility treatments kind of come in three flavors. You do oral medication plus IUI for three to four cycles, and then generally you move on to IVF. There was a time about 15 years ago where the IVF success rates were not that, as good as they are now and coverage wasn't as, uh, co mm -hmm. coverage still isn't as wide as it needs to be, but it's better. Um, so injectables plus, I, plus IUI was kind of the f kind of intermediate step. So you would do Clomid, IUI. So again, let's focus on the patient with unexplained infertility. You would do Clomid, IUI for three cycles. If that didn't work, you would do injectable medications with IUI. And the point of adding in the injectables was to super ovulate the patient so that instead of making two or three follicles with Clomid, you would make four to six follicles with the injectables 
marry the IUI, increase your odds of sperm and egg meeting. But what ended up happening is you mm -hmm. increase dramatically your risk mm -hmm. of twins and higher order multiples, triplets. That's how you ended up like shows with John and Kate plus eight. Mm -hmm. the, the, their, their sextuplets were the result of um, super ovulation with injectables and IUI is, is what I understand. Um, mm -hmm. So that treatment has kind of become less mainstream and the move straight to IVF has become okay. more common as IVF success rates are better. Um, and there's increasing coverage and the standard of care. In 2008, the group from Boston IVF published a study that basically demonstrated it was most efficient in patients with unexplained infertility to go clomid IUI for three cycles and then go straight to IVF mm -hmm. versus clomid IUI for three cycles, injectables and IUI mm -hmm. for three cycles, and then go to IVF. Patients got right. Tacoma baby 10 months faster at $10,000 wow. overall less. That's the standard. That's, that's pretty incredible. A couple of other things that you mentioned in your videos were this. You already mentioned multiples are a concern. You quoted 25% uh, chance of twins with IUI and injectables, 5% triplets or more. Uh, up to yeah. six tablets or even more. Yeah. The risk of, there is a risk of cancellation if you have too many follicles because you want to avoid higher order multiples like the sex tuplets and quintuplets. Um, and right. there's also more of a risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. I'll explain that, touch a little bit on that about OHSS. So usually what you're doing when you add in injectables, your these injectables are FSH hormones. And, um, you know, that's basically, you're basically directly stimulating the ovary and getting the follicles to grow. If you have a high AMH, if your reserve is robust, you're gonna be very sensitive to injectable medication. And as a result, you will make a lot of follicles. So it is an art form to some degree that you wanna make sure whoever is managing this has experience in using injectable medication. Because what can end up happening is you can make seven, nine, follicles and it would not be wise to move forward because you could be at risk for higher order multiples yeah. and the maternal and uh, fetal morbidity that mm -hmm. comes with it risk of preterm mm -hmm. delivery higher risk yeah. of cerebral palsy etc i mean dr right. clark can talk to you all yeah. day about that um mm -hmm. so that's why we have to make you have to be there's a lot of experience when it needed yeah. when it comes to using injectable medications yeah. um so you wanna make sure that it's, people are being thoughtful about how they're dosing you. Um, and there can be some situations, for example, if you're 42 and we're doing injectables and you make five follicles, I probably wouldn't think twice about letting you do an IUI because your risk of OHSS, yeah. your risk of multiples is lower, lower just because the quality of the eggs you release are gonna be lower. So I can gam we can gamble um, that your risk of multiples is going to be lower as opposed to if you were 28 yeah. and you made five or seven follicles, mm -hmm. I'd be a little more cautious and perhaps anxious about that. Right. Um, you also added in your videos that with the injectables, they do need progesterone vaginal suppository support. Why mm -hmm. is that? So in injectable cycles, there, there is still some thought um, that the use of the injection injectables can disrupt the brain's communication with the ovary after ovulation and the progesterone production from the resulting corpus luteum um, may not be as robust as you would like it to be. Because remember, after you ovulate, the structure that's left over called the corpus luteum mm -hmm. uh, in the ovary makes progesterone, which supports pregnancy until eight weeks. Yeah. So when the placenta takes over. So studies have demonstrated that in those using injectable cycles, there is benefit to adding progesterone vaginal suppositories. And well, let me say progesterone support and the preference is kind of lining up for vaginal progesterone, which is better absorbed than oral. Okay. And then you also touched on, uh, there's something called a hybrid cycle where you use inject injectables plus the oral meds, which the oral meds would either be Clomid or Letrozole, right? So right. that is just a combination <clears throat> of the two. Is there a certain right. situation where that might be better uh, for an individual? There are a lot of, um, there, aren't any in, there aren't any specifically, but for example, someone with PCOS who has a high AMH, who does not respond to oral medication, about five to 10% of patients with PCOS are resistant to oral medication alone. So they might be the folks where if you give them injectable medications, they might respond really uh, robustly. So 
plus it's expensive. So mm -hmm. if you combine the two, you can reduce cost and probably uh, reduce the hyperstimulation risk um, just because they don't need as much. It's also, uh, they don't need as frequent monitoring. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. okay. Um, can, you touched on this, can the hybrid IUI cycle be used to prepare someone for IVF? Yeah, so I think there's some questions about this in the chat. So yes. I think it's, it's important to remember um, the use of Clomid, the use of Letrozole, um, the use of injectable medications are designed to um, get the ovary to make follicles. Um, IVF uses injectable medications to get the ovary to make as the maximum number of follicles that are available. The IUI is just an adjunct to get the sperm there. So if you're doing IVF and you are um, 42, your AMH is 0.5, um, there are studies that demonstrate that I don't know if I need to give you $6,000 worth of injectable medications to get two follicles when I could give you Clomid plus IUI and still get two follicles and go to retrieval with those two mm -hmm. follicles. So I think that's I think that's kind of where we are as a field uh, in the indication for using um, the hybrid approach in IVF. Gotcha. I don't think it's necessarily first line. There are indications where people use hybrid approaches for first line for people using InvoCell, which is mm -hmm. kind of a um, technique for incu uh, incu which is basically like an incubator of, in the vagina that helps egg and sperm uh, develop. Um, and, and uh, fertilize and then embryo grows. Um, there are these kind of lower cost uh, pitched as hybrid cycles, hybrid oral plus injections tend to be pitched as low cost IVF. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see that kind of, these mm -hmm. kind of protocols used when that language is used. Mm -hmm. um, can you convert those folks who make too many follicles into to IVF? You can there are significant logistic and cost issues that are associated with that, uh, but you certainly can, and we've done it before. Okay, okay. Um, and you also mentioned, and I'll just go over that, uh, one of the questions is how many follicles can be expected with the different types of IUIs? You quoted with the orals, Clomid and Letrozole, you can ex expect one to three follicles. Injectables yeah, I, five to six, and then hybrid two to four. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's kind of a, fa I mean, it's yeah. so, again, it depends it's on a, the guess, age of the patient. Estimate, yeah. Yeah, and the AMH, yeah. um, but those are just some rough, but I mean, it's real simple. Oral medication, one to three, injectables, you know, five plus, uh, oral plus injections, two to four is the goal, but sometimes you overshoot it and sometimes you get more, sometimes you get less. Mm -hmm. And then one of the questions uh, I was gonna ask you, but it was also in the thread here, mm -hmm. is a trigger shot, an HCG trigger shot always used in an IUI course or IUI cycle? It does not need to be. Again, mm -hmm. if you're doing natural cycle with IUI and you have regular periods and you confidently get an uh, ovulation prediction kit that's positive on cycle day 14, you don't need a trigger shot. There isn't evidence that demonstrates that it's better for your outcome. Mm -hmm. If you never get positive surges, if you purchase donor sperm, if you're, um, you know, really frustrated about these kits and your confidence in timing the IUI has eroded, I think a trigger shot is a good idea uh, for the patient. Is it going to necessarily make the outcome better? Mm -hmm. I think that's still, there's some controversy about that statement. But I think you got to listen to your patient and recognize like, look, they're frustrated with this. This isn't working. They need to move on. They're using donor sperm. They have three vials. It's a little, you know, you want to be a little, uh, thoughtful about how efficient you are being and provide confidence to the patient that the timing is correct. Um, trigger shots when you do injectable medications, uh, definitely a standard part. Obviously, trigger shots with IVF, standard. Um, patients with PCOS tend not to have confident readings on ovulation prediction kits. So there's a lower threshold for using mid-cycle scans and trigger shots for those folks. And, for the and, and the point about the trigger shot is the IUI is usually timed 36 hours after the trigger shot. So gotcha, when, gotcha. It, when applicable, we'll say have, have sperm exposure. If applicable, 
the day you give yourself the trigger shot, abstain the day after from ejaculation, mm -hmm. and then come in for the IUI 36 hours later. Okay, excellent. So another video you talked about, because um, you mentioned a lot about OPKs, and I, know I, I, I just hear a lot that a lot of people stress out about them, and I understand why, because it can be confusing and it can be a little stressful. So there is an alternative to use ultrasound monitoring rather than the OPKs. Is that something that people can do? Yeah, so it, you can monitor with, uh, it, it increased costs. I think that's yeah. what we're, always, again, I am, am in a market where we're very cost conscious because a significant portion of the patients do not have coverage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a standard Clomid IUI cycle without an ultrasound is $500. When you add in ultrasound monitoring and injectables, you can easily get above 1000 per cycle. Yeah. So that's something that people need to keep in mind. Do you really need ultrasound monitoring? Um, I think there's value in it, um, even though there might not be evidence in certain populations that it's beneficial. Um, I think there's value in it because it provides more data, more confidence to the patient, um, and more kind of predictability to some degree. Um, usually, if you're doing Clomid IUI, what we what you know we'll tell people is come in cycle day twelve to fourteen for an ultrasound or letrozole IUI whatever, and then we'll look and see if you have a follicle that's eighteen to twenty two millimeters, um, usually on the higher end if you're using Clomid um, in follicle size, then we'll trigger you and do an IUI. Sometimes we'll say hey you're not ready yet come back for another ultrasound. So obviously the more ultrasounds you do if you don't have insurance coverage you're kind of racking up charges um, that are largely valuable to patients, but in some in in instances may not be. Yeah. Okay, and again, it's highly individualized, as you've said multiple times throughout this discussion. Yeah. It, it is, and in discussing um, why the, the provider might recommend that and also adding on the extra cost is also something that the discussion that should be had al along this process. And things are allowed to change. It's one thing I learned about going through IVF as many times as I did. You had to be very willing to have changes in your site, have changes in the plan, because things can change at the drop of a hat. And you might be steered in one direction that you thought you were going in another. Uh, I had to learn how to kind of let lose, let go of being in control and realize that uh, I couldn't control a lot of this. And so I find that uh, talking about that in situations like this, you know, you, you do have to be willing to compromise and understand that it may not go as exactly as you planned. Um, and that can be kind of frustrating, but these guys know what they're doing. So I had to learn very quickly to trust my doc. <laughs> Yeah, but I, think that's, so. and I think that's what's, what's important. I think the yeah. next decade um, of fertility care, I really believe this, it has to be focused on the patient experience. And yeah. specifically, it, is, it behooves the patient and the physician to listen. Um, specifically, the physician needs to pay attention and listen to what the uh, patient's concerns are. Yeah. Because, look, the patient doesn't like the ovulation prediction kits. They don't work. It's annoying. It's frustrating. They're ready to move on. Yeah. Okay. Maybe your clinic doesn't, doesn't, you know, recommend it, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But clearly the patient would feel better to have that piece of control back. Yes. Yeah. Give me that back doctor, please. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I found that if you kind of listen to what they're saying, mm -hmm. Uh, you can customize the treatment better. Now, that can be difficult, just to pull, pull back the curtain a little bit. That can mm -hmm. be a little challenging for fertility clinics because if you just do kind of the same thing to everybody, it makes it yeah. easier to train, it makes it easier to yeah. onboard new people, staff, everyone kind of understands the protocols and stuff like that. But then you lose the ability to customize. Um, yeah. So it's a delicate balance that clinics mm -hmm. uh, you know, are tack trying to tackle every day. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. I mean, I think it's the same thing in anything. It's the same thing with myself as well. And what I do, you have to be willing to compromise and give the patient back some control. Uh, like you said, even if it's not what you necessarily think is the next best step, as long as you have that conversation with the patient and they understand the risk, the benefits, all of that going along of why you do or do not recommend such things, we still have to listen to them. It's, it's their journey. It's their journey yep. and they, they have to feel like they have some say in it. Okay, yep. so we, you kind of touched on this earlier, but um, how to decide, how do you decide how many IUI cycles to do before moving on to the next step? Which typically, if you're doing IUI, the, any of the forms that we've already mentioned, the next step would typically be IVF in most cases. 
I heard, and I ask this question all the time because I get messages all the, all the time. I've done 10 IUIs. I've done six IUIs. What mm. should I do? And, you know, I hear, or I've done all these IUIs and now I'm out of money. What do I do? What would you say to those people? Yeah, I would, A, figure, first of all, just, you know, I think it'd be a good idea to see a fertility specialist to understand what is the indication, right? So again, the single woman, you know, this, the um, single individual um, doing donor inseminations, um, lesbian couple in which one partner is doing inseminations, maybe not unreasonable to go past six insemination cycles. It can get expensive, et cetera. But I think after six IUIs, um, definitely would talk to a fertility specialist, regardless of why you're doing IUIs, um, even in the most liberal cases. Um, in general, for patients with infertility, um, you know, unexplained PCOS, three to four cycles of Clomid IUI, letrozole IUI is at where you get your peak uh, success rate. And after which time it plateaus and you're not really gaining anything. So three, three for sure, you should see a fertility, uh, three, you should see a fertility specialist. Yeah. Six, uh, definitely should see a yeah. fertility specialist. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and one of the other points I also want to make is I was on labor and delivery one day. I mean, I'm not a fertility specialist. Everybody knows I'm not, but I do a lot of this on social media and I have a lot of con connections mm -hmm. with you guys. And so a lot of people ask me questions like this. There was a resident from another service that was there seeing another patient and she came to me I, I just want to ask you a quick question um i have two to three periods a year i'm 30 years old um and i asked my OBGYN, you know is this going to be a problem for me getting pregnant and she said oh don't worry about it um when you're ready to get pregnant we'll just give you clomid mm -hmm. and my first thought was why aren't you having periods yeah. You know, and I think the one thing that I message I always want to get across before you do any type of fertility, anything, IUI is anything, it has to start with what your menstrual cycles are doing. And if you're not having regular menstrual cycles or having two to three periods a year, you've got to figure, figure out why that's occurring first and foremost, right? Yeah, I mean, that's critical. So the patient who shows yeah. up at the fertility clinic with two cycles a year, um, who's trying to get pregnant, gets a full workup, checking the thyroid, yeah. checking the pituitary, making sure yeah. we're not missing something. Now, yeah. sometimes the workup is, and many times actually, the workup is completely normal and they just, for whatever reason, have an underlying ovulation dysfunction. So then the focus is to the chief complaint, which is, you know, what is your goal? What are you here yeah. for? Well, I'm trying to get pregnant. Okay, well then that's when you start going down the line of Clomid, yeah. letrozole, yeah. or versus... I just want to know why I don't have periods. I'm not trying to get yeah. pregnant right now. Yeah. This is just worrying me. Um, I'm concerned uh, or, you know, I want to have periods. I also don't want to do on this cyclic medication, whatever the, if it's a not pregnancy indication, then we treat differently. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, a lot of, you know, we're here at an academic medical center. We have um, a PCOS clinic for example, mm -hmm. where all we see is patients with PCOS who are not trying to get pregnant, but need a little more time with their physician to talk about why are they not having periods and explore uh, to make sure we're not, you know, something isn't being missed endocrinologically. Yeah, I, I just bring this up is because, you know, um, just as if you getting your screening, thyroid screening, getting any kind of uh, health screening yearly, um, having a, a regular menstrual cycle is part of your overall health assessment. So if that's not happening, we got to make sure there's not another reason that's causing that. Even if you're not anticipating having a child anytime in the near future, that's still part of your routine health and, and maintenance. And that's something that needs to be addressed if you're not having regular menstrual cycles. So I always try to make sure I get that in there somewhere so that people can, yeah, can get very uh, help if they need to. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go through an answer. You have about five minutes left. I'm going to answer see if there's a few questions. Uh, we already talked about the best time of day to test for ovulation in the day. Dr. Omertag says before 2, uh, 2 mm -hmm. p.m., and there's no reason to test a gazillion times a day. Um, right. We also talked about uh, if, I, the, uh, if IVF isn't a good solution because of the decreased ovarian reserve, why would Clobit IUI be the recommended by the reproductive endocrinologist? Dr. Omertag uh, answered that earlier because the success rates or the uh, outcome is probably about the same as someone that has DOR. Um, we also talked about morphology. Uh, I'm 40 
and have a great AMH and FSH levels above average ovarian reserve, do you recommend trying IUI first or going straight to IVF? So highly individualized. I mean, in general, if you're above the age of 38, um, what's the goal? Um, the goal is to get pregnant. You know, if you have insurance coverage um, and you want to go straight to IVF, depending on your policy and the employer-based plan that you might have, they might require you to do IUIs twice mm -hmm. before you go to IVF. Yeah. They may not. You might be paying out of pocket and say, I just want to go straight to IVF. Mm -hmm. You might say, man, I want to try these IUIs first. I'm 40. I have a good reserve. And those patients can get pregnant. Um, mm -hmm. they, they get pregnant in our clinic without having to go to IVF. Again, the goal of the fertility clinic is sometimes it feels like it, but the goal is not to do IVF. The goal is to yes. help you get pregnant yeah. at the pace yeah. that is comfortable for you. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would say to that. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. uh, what if you have tubal blockage and PCOS? Would it be beneficial to do IUI or move on to IVF or InvoCell? So it depends. Again, highly individualized. Obviously, age is important, is an important factor here if you're 30 versus if you were 42, 40. Um, but the tubal blockage is an issue with IUI. Yeah, the tubal blockage is a problem yeah. with IUI. I mean, if your yeah. tubes are truly blocked, both of them, and I say truly because sometimes people will have blockage at the end of the tube versus at the interface between the uterus and the start of the tube, and those can be a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, if there's any tubal blockage, I think IVF makes the most sense. Yeah. yeah. Should a BRCA-positive patient be worried about the hormonal stimulation from these treatments increasing the risk of ovarian cancer? I think it's appropriate to be worried. Do you need to, and I use that, I think it's appropriate to be, to raise a concern, but I don't think it, that concern needs to go to a place where you're not eligible or it's a contraindication to do these treatments. Um, because many patients who have a BRCA mutation, they're kind of on a clock to some degree. They might, they might be 33, they might, and they've been advised, you need to complete your fertility before we talk about risk-reducing surgeries, yeah. et cetera, whether removing ovaries, um, being part of that. So mm -hmm. um, these patients typically need to undergo simple treatments and they're successful. Sometimes they need IVF um, in which they can bank embryos. So again, in general, it's appropriate to raise the concern, but it doesn't rise to a level that, in which it's yeah. a contraindication for treatment. Okay. What is this role? And I've heard about this in certain protocols about using growth hormone. How does that add yeah. to so, any protocol? Yeah. So we've gone through the growth hormone cycle. We're, we're kind of, we went through a cycle about the use of growth hormone and IVF back in 2008, 2009. It's now coming back again, um, 10 years later, which is about on, on brand for these kind of fringe adjunct treatments. Um, and I don't say any of this pejoratively, um, there is a, I think there is probably a role for growth hormone. There's still some controversy about how long you need to be on it before you do IVF. I think it's indicated in patient, it's not, I don't think it's for the patient who's doing IUI, it's for the patient who's doing IVF. You could have a whole Instagram live on the use of growth yeah, hormone. Yeah. Um, but I think this is highly individualized. The evidence isn't great. Talk to your doctor about it. Yeah, yeah. And then this is the last question, I'll let you go. Um, is there something a male partner can do to, or take to help improve semen, I guess, semen parameters to make IUI successful? So we get this all the time. There have been some recent studies about supplements. The general takeaway is just take a men's once a day vitamin, not that brand per se, but just any generic once a day vitamin for men um, mm -hmm. will have the appropriate amount of vitamin C, zinc, yeah. which has been demonstrated not to actually be beneficial, but yeah. still um, that's, you know, taking these exotic brands that you mm -hmm. see are not really necessary. Yeah. Um, there's an army of, you know, Instagram ads waiting yes. to hit you up with mm -hmm. this supplement or that, yeah. which is basically just. There's actually now a male fertility supplement. Yeah. There are a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, I mean, yeah. And then the FDA it's, just came out against five companies who were having fertility supplements and were uh, pretty much shutting them down for, for false advertising. So, and thank you so much for mentioning it. And I'm sure you know, because you yeah. follow me on Instagram, how I am about the supplement industry, uh, especially targeting people that have infertility issues that are, are pregnant. 
you, especially if you're going through fertility treatments and you're taking anything supplement, your physician needs to know what you're taking. They need to know everything you're taking. Don't go and get a, a protocol from Dr. Omotog and then go to your Facebook group and start taking all the supplements that are recommended. He needs to know exactly what you're taking because they may not, may interfere uh, more than help. So, and be very careful. Um, yep. These designer supplement vitamin companies, they have pretty packaging. They have a great message. Yeah. They, I feel like they're kind of making people putting some of the, the responsibility on the, on the individual that you need to be taking this because you're not healthy enough. And, and that's not <laughs> fair. And that's not right. Um, and, and promising false things. It's because the FDA, they're not regulated by the FDA. They're able to get by this. It doesn't make it right though. It does not make it right. Be sure that, you know, you, you ask your physician what's recommended and you take what they recommend um, and don't buy into all these $90 a month subscriptions. Uh, it's just not worth it. So I appreciate you saying that because I've seen yeah. more and more targeting men uh, and, and the male partner about take, you need to have to take this and that, this fertility supplement. And uh, when you're in that situation and you're trying to have a child, I know people are willing to do anything, um, but this is not something that is evidence-based and we don't know what's in those, those supplements, right? We really don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think what's, I think I, I echo uh, Dr. Clark's message here. Less is more. Yeah. You know, I did an actual lightboard video on supplements for fertility. And I think it's really simple. Folate, folic acid, 800 micrograms. It does not matter folate versus folic acid. Check out Dr. Clark's comment. No, wait, no, so, no. So wait, real quick. So fo folate is the dietary form. Yeah. It's broken down to a bunch of things. Folic acid is what's in prenatal vitamins. Yep. Uh, but they're not the same. It's a form of folate. Uh, so someone actually messaged me. Dr. Omertog says uh, that you need to take folate, not folic acid. I said, I know Dr. Omertog, and that's not what he said. <laughs> yeah. So it's folic acid, and the reason for that is pre prevention of neural tube defects. So just a run-of-the-mill prenatal vitamin. And you guys probably recommend 800 over 400, which a lot of prenatal vitamins yep. now have. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and my message, you know, I have these patients who are like, I'm on folate. Should I stay on it? I was like, well, are you taking a prenatal vitamin? Yes. Then, and then we can go, go down this path yeah. um, and another time. But yeah. I don't, the, the evidence doesn't, you know, again, folic acid, fine, take it. It does not matter. Vitamin D3, take some extra. Mm -hmm. uh, Omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. These are nurse, nurses' health studies that have mm -hmm. demonstrated benefit in people trying to get pregnant. So mm -hmm. I don't get too caught up. There's a laundry list of hundreds of other things. Yeah. Um, but anyway, great, great time. Thanks, yeah. Dr. Clark. Thank you so much. Thanks, we everybody, for taking again. the time. And please go to uh, at Dr. Kenan Omertag. MD. Great videos. MD. Uh, that's the his, and I'll put that in my comments uh, or in the caption. And go to his Instagram TV uh, lightboard videos because they're very, very good. He's very good at, exp at explaining things. And you can get more of what we talked about in more detail and, and then broken down as well. So thank you so much for your time. Have a great rest of your day. And we'll no connect problem. again soon. I look forward to it. Take care, Dr. Thank Clark. you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Now listen to the next episode on whether or not pelvic floor physical therapy should be a part of routine postpartum and pregnancy care.